WAGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line. If you're new, this is an opportunity to call 525-1859 or our toll-free number 877-WAGP980 with questions you may have about the Bible or personal challenges you're facing in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on. And if we can help, by the grace of God, we'll do the best we can. You can, if you are comfortable, remain completely anonymous and not go on the air. Just simply dictate your question. And if you'd like to do that, uh, just let Deb know as you call in. People also have the opportunity to email us here directly into the studio. And our email address is tbl, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. Rick, good morning. As always, it's great to be here. It is indeed, Pastor. I see the phone lines already ringing, so we'll give them an opportunity to uh, determine whether they want to go live or whether they'll dictate their question. That's always an option here. Uh, We did get a number of uh, emails that came in over the last week and a half or two, and uh, so let's go to them now. Uh, Nope, actually, they are going to go live, so let's take that call. We always give preference to live callers. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, Dr. Brogy. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for calling today. Good. Uh, I was in uh, service this past Sunday, and uh, I was actually on pins and needles waiting for uh, what you said you felt like was going to happen at the end of 2012. I know you said that you're not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but you felt like something was going to happen and that we should, not just us as Christians, but the world should be ready for it. and and I didn't really hear it, and I was just wondering if, if you could uh, let, let <laughs> Like I said, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but uh, no, the sermon for those listening was uh, a sermon on really how to face the storms of life, and that would apply in any year and any age because uh, you're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or getting ready to go into one. There's uh, trials or storms of correction like Jonah had because of sin and there's storms of perfection that God uses just to grow and develop us like the disciples where they were right in the middle of God's will he commanded them to go into the middle across the lake and in the middle of the lake uh, in the middle of the sea of Galilee they faced a tremendous storm and there are some principles there and how to help us go through the storms of life but no, I think uh, I think there may be some very difficult times that we may face as a nation as a people uh, that will be rooted initially in the 
economy and the economics of things. Uh, we're, we're making the worst decisions in the world. We have been for a long time, and some of those decisions have been accentuated in the last few years, and I'm not blaming one party over another. I think many, many folks are responsible, people who want to get reelected, who are afraid to say no. You know, it's always easy to spend somebody else's money. Uh, you know, if someone gives you a couple hundred dollars and they say, hey, go go buy such and such, or here's here's your budget that you have. It's always easier to sp- spend someone else's money than it is your own. When it's your own, you're a little more careful. Of course, as Christians, we have a different perspective. At least we're supposed to. We say, well, none of it's mine. It's all God's, and we're stewards of what he has entrusted to us, and we're to be excellent stewards of it because someday we'll give an account, not to mention our use of money today affects what God can entrust to us that's of greater value. Jesus said he who is faithful and unrighteous mansion, uh, unrighteous uh, mammon will be uh, unrighteous and much, but he who is faithful in unrighteous mammon will be faithful and much. And so how we use money is often an indicator of where we are spiritually. Lay that aside. It's a law of God. You cannot erase it. You cannot spend money that you've not earned. And if you do, someone's going to pay for it. And that's what we're doing as a nation. We are spending money that has not yet been worked for. And I don't know what the latest numbers are, $15 trillion and growing. Um, it's, a, it's a huge amount. Most people, they can't even wrap their minds around a trillion uh, it's such a huge amount, but we're going to have to pay the price for it. It's a law of God. You cannot spend money that has not been worked for. And if you do, you will pay the penalty, either in taxes, uh, in inflation. And there are decisions that have been made that are looming on the economy, and I think they may hit before this year is out. Um, and we're going to face times like we've maybe never seen before. But there'll be times of opportunity for the church and the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Let's go to our next live caller who's waiting. All right, indeed. Thank you for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for um, calling. A particular pastor that I've uh, have been following on Facebook who has quite a large following uh, about a month ago posted something that, that caused his followers to kind of get pretty upset. What he put was spanking your child in every instance, is child abuse, and the Bible does not teach to spank. And this upset a lot of people, so he later uh, explained himself that the rod of discipline of Proverbs, he compared to um, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, of Psalms. And he said that the rod of discipline is not a negative thing. It's a a loving, guiding um, shepherd's staff that just directs you. And um, I just was curious, so what is your take of what the Bible says on the subject of spanking? And I'll, I'll, um, I'll hang up and listen to your response. Well, it's a good question. I have no idea which pastor you're referring to, so I, I won't comment on that. So there's no hidden agenda here because I don't know who said it. But God does say in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And the training process encompasses many things. Ultimately, you want to reach the heart. Uh, God admonishes parents really under the leadership of dads. I know there's not always a dad in every home, but he says, fathers, uh, do not exasperate your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and knowledge of the Lord. Uh, Some will say, well, that's just a generic word for parents, but it's really not. Um, 
he had he wanted to use such a word he could have as he had just done prior to that where he he speaks of honoring father and mother uh no he he has fathers in mind because fathers are to be the head of the home and they are to give leadership so spanking is done in the context of training and your goal is to reach the heart but does god's word teach spanking of course spankings of course it does um in the same chapter a few verses later in proverbs 22:15 foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child the rod of discipline will remove it far from him there it is the rod of discipline very very specific very very pointed no words that are mixed now when god speaks of discipline and training um, you know, it's to be done in a heart of love. It's to be done in a heart of control. Uh, God's word is very, very clear that a uh, parent who is correcting their child in a way where they are out of control, uh, well, they are really missing the mark of what God has called them to do. Uh, the scripture says, be angry, but sin not. And so there is a, an anger that we can have, but if it's an anger that is out of control, then we need to get control of ourselves. I mean, how can we really ask our children to be in control if we're out of control? Uh, we, we cannot. So here, here's the thing. Here's what parents often do. They go to one extreme or the other. If they've grown up in a home that maybe was very abusive, and spankings were done in an ungodly fashion. And, and I've heard all the stories in a pastor's office. You know, I've heard, you know, adults tell me that my dad chased me around the house with a BB gun. I remember one Marine telling me that with tears in his eyes. And it broke my heart to think that a parent could treat a child that way. I've heard adults tell me how their parents drug them by their hair, hair around the house. Just awful things. And so sometimes if you grow up in a home like that, you go to the other extreme and you say, well, I'll never spank. I'd never touch my child. And and then we, again, throw out God's principles of corporal punishment. So God is against child abuse. And if you spank your child out of control, then you are abusing what God has called you to do as a parent. So the scripture does speak nonetheless to spanking our child on the backside. I have a whole message on this on our on our message uh, on Ephesians, which I, I gave, I think, that just within this year, Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. It should be posted online at cbcbuford.org. You might want to listen to that message because I speak about spanking. Of course, uh, the rod means a rod. God tells us where to do it on the backside. Uh, it's a special padded area. Um, you don't use your hand. You never use the same instrument that you reach out to love with. Uh, God speaks of a separate instrument. And a rod, you know, is would be parable, uh, comparable to, you know, what Christians used to know 50 years ago called a switch. Um, it, it's, it's small. It stings. It's to the point. It only takes a couple quick. Uh, swift uh, hits, and it's done. And and then, of course, you, you love on your child and, and you um, care for him. Listen, if you want to study this in detail, you might, again, want to listen to my sermon. But there's also a book that I give to parents often when they come in 
uh, for counseling on how to raise their children and how to discipline them biblically. It's, it's by a gentleman, a brother in Christ named Richard Fugate. It's entitled, What the Bible Says About Child Discipline. What the Bible Says About Child Discipline. It's excellent. It's well done. Uh, by the way, uh, if you have been told that the word for rod, well, just has the connotation of a shepherd's rod and love. And, and again, discipline is a form of love. And that's what Proverbs brings out. But he walks through very carefully um, all the usages of the word rod, its different connotations in Scripture. And uh, there's no way, no way on earth that God's word teaches that it's not corporal and physical in nature, but neither is it abusive. So people tend to go to extremes. Uh, They either are abusive with children or they're permissive in their parenting skills and they don't discipline at all. The kids are out of control and there is a balance and that balance is found in scripture. Um, So again, I don't know who this pastor is who said there's no biblical basis for corporal punishment they may be responding out of their own past really than from the word of God. And that's sad if that's what they've done. Anyway, let's go to our next question. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980 or email us as this listener has at tbl at net. This person would like to know, are Matthew 25, 31 through 46 and Revelation 20, verse 12, the same event? If so, a simple yes will do. Um, The writer says he believes they are. But if you don't believe they are, please explain how or why they are not. All right. And keep reading. I see some more to that question. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, He writes, I've been studying on the white throne judgment and the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25. In some ways, I can see where it appears that these are separate judgments. But when Jesus says in Matthew 25 that those on the left hand depart into everlasting fire and the righteous into life eternal, how could this not be the white throne? And then he has a follow-up question referring to the judgment of the nations uh, in verses 34 through 40. Are these given the kingdom by good works and by being kind to Israel, or are these individuals already saved, being commended for their works and service? Well, that's a great question. Let me see if I can respond to it. Yeah, Matthew 24 and 25 is what we typically refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus gives it on the Mount of Olives in response to a question his disciples ask. Uh, they came out from the temple and was going away when the disciples came to point the buildings to, out to him. And and they ask one question and um, then they ask a second one and they say, well, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus begins to articulate the sign of his coming in the end of the age. And he speaks of primarily what's referred to in the book of Jeremiah as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's referred to in this discourse as um, the time of great tribulation. So sometimes we refer to it as the tribulation period. The length of it is given in both Testaments, the old and new. In Daniel 9, it tells us it's seven years long, as does the book of Revelation. Uh, It's a horrible time upon the earth, and it culminates with the physical return of Christ to uh, Israel. His feet are literally placed on the Mount of Olives, as the prophet Zechariah chapter 14 indicates. And when he returns, some will be taken away in judgment. One will be taken, one will be left. That verse, by the way, has nothing to do with the rapture. 
Hal Lindsey, as far as I know, was the first to popularize that interpretation. Uh, he went to Dallas Seminary where I went. He didn't learn it there. Uh, in fact, uh, his um, exegesis of Matthew 25 was typically used as illustrations of what we should not do as Bible exegetes. Um, but the idea, one will be taken, one will be left, uh, really is a picture of those who are taken away in judgment, those who are left to rule and reign with Christ upon the earth for a thousand years. The judgment of the nations, and there are different judgments that are spoken of in the Bible, uh, has nothing to do, of course, with the great white throne judgment. So don't bleed those two together. This particular judgment happens at the end of the tribulation. The judgment of Revelation 20 happens at the end of the millennium. So there are two different judgments altogether. In uh, Matthew 25, there are three classes of people. There are the sheep, the goats, and my brethren, um, believers. And the sheep and the goat judgment are really a manifestation of those who know Christ and those who don't. Those who know him who are his sheep give evidence or indication that they know him by the works that they do. And so he goes into that, you know, marvelous uh, explanation that when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in naked and you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me and so on and so forth. And they said, well, Lord, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in naked or clothe you? And, And then he said, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine or the least of my brethren, the way it used to be articulated in the older English, you did it to me. Uh, And then he gives the opposite, and he says, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, of course, lost people, as evidenced by their works, go away into eternal punishment. So they're not saved on the basis of what they do. Uh, The Protestant reformers had it correct when they taught you're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. That's a biblical principle. Um, The grace of God that brings us salvation is instructive, Paul says in Titus 2. It teaches us to deny uh, worldly desires and ungodly living and to want to live holy and zealously for Christ in the present age. So if we've been regenerated by the Spirit, our life will give evidence of it. And of course, during the time of the Great Tribulation, how we treat the Jewish people will be evidence of whether or not we really know the living God. Uh, There will be people who will uh, have that anti-Semitic spirit that will be in full expression during that seven-year period in the way they treat Israel. And there will be people who are born again who will treat his brethren with great compassion. There will be believers who will treat other believers in a loving, caring, compassionate way because they've been regenerated by the Spirit. And so really what you see in Matthew 25 parallels what Jesus taught earlier in this gospel in Matthew 7, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And so if indeed we have a true relationship with him, if there's a shepherd-sheep relationship then the way we care for his people 
will be evidenced uh, in our lifestyle choices. So Revelation uh, 20 takes place after the uh, thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. This particular judgment happens right at the end of the tribulation period where the goats of this world were carried away in judgment. The sheep of this world are left to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Um, in uh, Matthew 25, uh, there's, uh, again, three groups of people. We're in Revelation 20. There's only one group of people present, just the wicked dead. Uh, some in Matthew twi- 25 inherit eternal life. Some are eternally punished. In Revelation 20, um, only present are the wicked dead, and they are all cast in the lake of fire, which is forever and ever and ever. So there are different judgments in the Bible. There's the believer's judgment that is still in the future that takes place when the church is caught up because the rewards are ministered and dealt out before the millennial reign of Christ, because various degrees of responsibility and privilege are based on our faithfulness in this life. So that's the next coming judgment. There's the judgment of the nations that happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation period where God separates uh, believing people from unbelieving people. There's the great white throne judgment. There's actually seven different judgments that I teach in my course on eschatology uh, that the Bible teaches. And uh, you might want to listen to that in our series on uh, future things. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, Numerous churches, somebody writes, um, various denominations use a missions fundraising approach called faith promise giving. The way it's presented in this person's church is they are supposed to make a promise of future giving based on future income that they don't currently know where it will come from. Uh, they're supposed to have faith that God will honor that faith pledge that they make to the church to create the income somehow in the future. Families are asked to come forward during a designated part of the service to hand over their faith promise at the front. Now, this strikes the listener as somewhat at odds with giving as taught in the New Testament. We are admonished in Scripture to give from what we have, not what we don't have. We're taught not to make a show of giving, and we're taught not to presume on the mercy and blessing of God regarding our self-generated purposes and plans, financial or otherwise. And the listener would like to know whether they're wrong. What is your take on this? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing for your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So God talks about honoring him from what he's entrusted to us. And this same principle is brought out in 1 Corinthians 16. And in verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. So again, it's as you prosper, it's as God gives increase that you give. Now, I believe the starting place, of course, is the tithe. We are to give the first 10% of our increase. But tithing is 
part of the um, plan. It's not the whole plan. Uh, God speaks of a tithe and of an offering. And it's important to acknowledge that giving is not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. It's not a 90-10% relationship. Well, 10% of it's God's. 90% is mine to do whatever I want. Well, again, the fact that God speaks of both the tithe and the offering tells me that it's not all all mine, 90%. It's all his. And again, that principle is echoed in many other passages in God's word, that it's all his and we're just stewards of what he has entrusted to our care. Now, the first time I was exposed to the whole idea of the faith promise giving, I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and it was in the 1970s, and I think this is when the idea became popular. It was the first uh, time I had ever heard of it, and when I'd asked about it myself, they said, well, this is kind of a new thing in evangelicalism. It came out in the mid-70s. And so we would gather at our annual staff conferences, and uh, they would pass out what they called a faith promise card. And this was money that we were to give uh, to Campus Crusade that we didn't have, that we would believe God somehow to give us during the year. And so um, maybe some unexpected check would come in for $200, and you said, well, I made a faith promise that I would just trust God somehow to give $1,000 of unknown income, and, and I would give this to his work. So that's kind of how it works. You're, you're believing God for monies that you don't have, and then you, when they come in, you, you, you give them. Uh, this is my take on it. Uh, where I've typically seen this done in churches or even in organizations, it's when really biblical giving is not faithfully taught. Uh, churches that often do this, for instance, do not teach tithing. And so it's kind of a catch-up plan where people would give above and beyond what they're giving weekly. And the reason they have to do this is because very often the pastor or the church either doesn't believe in or thinks tithing is antiquated as an Old Testament practice and not for the New Covenant age, or the pastor himself doesn't tithe or want to tithe, so he doesn't want to be hypocritical and teach tithing. And, and so it becomes kind of a catch-up plan. Listen, if, if God's people would just start with the tithe, 10% of the increase, number one, they'd have a lot less financial problems themselves because very often you discover that when you give 10% of your increase to your local assembly, it causes you to use the other 90% far more wisely. And you begin to think in a different manner. When you give a 10% of the increase that God gives you in a weekly basis in worship, you just treat the rest of the money differently. You're, you're a better steward. Um, but if God's people just started there, we wouldn't have the need for these faith promise and all the other little quirky things that the body of Christ has adopted for which there's no biblical or uh, instructive basis anywhere in the Old or the New Testaments. Now, again, um, you may have unexpected income that God will give you, and you immediately think, well, I'm going to tithe off of this if God gives me increase. Somebody sends you $100 for your birthday that you weren't expecting, well, you're going to think right off, well, I'm going to give $10 right off out of this $100 gift that I didn't expect to get. But again, giving is not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. God might want you to give more than 
$10. He might want you to give an offering and make it 25 He may want you to give the whole thing like the widow did with her two mites. And again, this is issues of the heart, issues of walking with God, issues of sensitivity that we need to be in tune to. I have a course. I need to teach it again because it's been almost three years since I've taught it. Um, and it's a course called uh, Financial Fitness God's Way. And again, when sometimes people think of money, they think just in terms of tithing, but it's much bigger than that. And in the course, we walk through first, what is stewardship? and What does it mean to be a steward? So we start with principles of stewardship, principles of giving, principles of saving, principles of debt, and principles of investing. We'll look at those five major areas. And I, and I analyze, too, in great detail, what about these folks who say tithing is not for today? How do they come to that conclusion? How do they say, well, it's not 10%, but it was 13%, or some would say it was 23%, and it has no application for today? And I go through their arguments piece by piece by piece. You're a thinking person. You can test the scriptures for yourself to see what they say. And then after walking through those five areas, the sixth section of the course deals with, well, how do I apply this and flesh this out in a budget that reflects these five major areas of finances that the Word of God teaches? I I suggest maybe you uh, consider going through that course. I think it would be extremely helpful. It's a requirement if I marry someone. I'm going through with two couples right now doing premarital counseling. And uh, part of their homework is they have to go through the course and come up with a budget that reflects those principles. Uh, It would keep a lot of marriages out of deep trouble if they understood and applied what God says about money. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. And you can email us at tbl at net. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question is on Romans 11, where it talks that through the fall of Israel for not accepting the Savior Jesus Christ, that salvation has come to the Gentile. Okay? And it talks about the Gentiles being grafted in to the root. Yes. But then over in verse 26, it says, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And then, you know, it refers to a, a verse. Yes. Uh, and I've always understood, uh, refers to a verse out of Isaiah. Isaiah 59, right. Because many places it states that there would just be a remnant of Israel saved. So what's that saying there in verse 26? That's a great question. Let me see if I can respond to it. 9, 10, and 11 need to, of course, be understood as a unit because at the end of chapter 8, Paul has argued that, you know, as God's people— Nothing can separate us from his love. Um, And then he gives those oft-quoted verses in verses 37 and 38 that in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that not death, not life, not angels, not principalities. And he goes through every conceivable object uh, in the universe shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So the natural question to ask is, well, if that's true, if you love us with an everlasting love, God, you repeatedly said that in the Old Testament of Israel, that you'd love them with an everlasting love. Well, what's the deal? Because it appears that you have forsaken 
Israel. And so Paul's argument in 9, 10, and 11 is dealing with national election, not personal election. Uh, Obviously, there are implications in personal election, but the theme and thrust is national election. And so this is not a parenthesis in the book of Romans. This is a continuation of his argument from chapter 8. And so in chapter 9, he deals with Israel's election. In chapter 10, he deals with their rejection. He says, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And this was not God's fault. This was their fault. Because Paul says, the word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. He speaks of the fact how God's word had been preached right into their mouths. They had heard the word of God. The problem is it didn't connect with the heart. And so he says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It it touched uh, the intellect, but it never touched the will. And so Paul connects the two as does Christ. And then in 11, lest we as uh, Gentiles become arrogant, thinking, well, we're better than the Jew, uh, he reminds us to have humility because we have been grafted in. But there's coming a day in the future when Israel will respond. And of course, that in the Old Testament is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. One of the chief purposes and function of the coming great tribulation period is to bring Israel to faith, to acknowledge that Jesus is her Lord. And so when he speaks here um, in Romans eleven twenty six, again, 9 deals with their election, 10 with their rejection, 11 with their future restoration. When he says all Israel shall be saved, it's a qualified all in the Bible. And he's already qualified that, for instance, earlier in the book in Romans 2. For he makes it very clear in Romans 2. Let me turn there, verse uh, 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men but from God. So there he talks about a true Israelite and a, and a non-Israelite, not in physical terms because that was their typical argument. Their argument was, well, look, we're descendants of Abraham, so that makes us right with God. And Jesus said in John 8, look, if you were really Abraham's children, you'd do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you do the deeds of your father, the devil. Um, You're not rightly related to God. And so Paul is not teaching that every Jew will go to heaven um, in quoting this passage from Isaiah, because clearly the Old Testament did not teach that every Jew went to heaven. There are many Jews, for instance, who left the Exodus who uh, were in the time of the wilderness swallowed up uh, alive into eternal condemnation, those who fell under the rebellion of Korah. So all Israel is really qualified in many passages, but I appeal to this one because it's right within the same epistle where Paul defines a true Israelite not as one who is just outwardly in Israelite is evidenced by his circumcision by some religious rite, but one who is a true Israelite, a, a true Jew, and that he's been born again, regenerated, 
in the heart. And that's what Romans 10 teaches is a true believer, uh, that the word that has been preached into their mouths then touches the heart so that they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Um, and, and that, I, I believe, is what he is referring to when he comes to the 11th chapter. It certainly has application for the Gentile today because there are many Gentiles today who outwardly are religious. Uh, they've gone through the hoops. They've walked the aisle of a crusade. They've been baptized. They've joined a church, but they've never been regenerated. And so outwardly, they're a Christian, but they've never had a circumcision of the heart. But in the original context, he's dealing with Jewish people. And I think you can connect uh, Romans 11 with Romans 2, and it really solves the problem. And when you look at the quotation from Isaiah 59, and you go back and read it in its original context, he is once again dealing with true Jews versus pseudo-Jews, pseudo in the sense that they are physical descendants of Abraham, but don't have a, a right relationship with the living God. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, indeed. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. And um, our next caller uh, would like you to please explain Revelation 21.8. Is this addressing those who lie about small things in their lives, or is it addressing those who would lie about being a believer and denying Christ? If it's referring to those who tell lies about their lives other than their salvation, would this be almost a form of works-based salvation? Uh, this person's just confused about what this really means. Well, he says in 21.7, just to back up a little bit, um, he writes, He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part shall be with the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So again, very typical in Johannan theology, which reflects what the Lord himself taught in two passages that we've already referenced this morning, in Matthew 7 and Matthew 25, the Sermon on the Mount, and later the Olivet Discourse, we're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. There is a changed life. Now, can a Christian lie? Of course he can. Anyone can lie. Can a Christian commit immorality? Of course he can. Anyone can commit immorality. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, when he gives illustrations of greediness and immorality. He warns us, um, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But if a person's lifestyle is that of lying, if a person's lifestyle is that of being cowardly and immoral and so forth, they're giving proof positive that they don't really know the Lord. In fact, a little bit later in the same chapter, when again he's speaking of the new city, the new Jerusalem, which becomes the capital of the new heaven and the new earth, uh, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And there again you see that word, practice. It's speaking here of a specific lifestyle 
that someone has. Again, a Christian can fall into any of these, but if this is our lifestyle, then we're giving really a proof positive that we don't really know the Lord. And again, in the same chapter, uh, in the next chapter, he's going to speak about those who love lying. Again, a Christian is grieved when they sin, but the unbeliever, he, he takes a certain delight and sometimes even a victory in the lies that they've pulled off. And so, again, we're speaking of heart and we're speaking of lifestyle. We're speaking about change of direction that the grace of God brings to a person's life. And this is why when the Protestant reformers spoke of perseverance of the saints, um, sometimes when people use that term perseverance, they say, well, what that means is once saved, always saved. And that was certainly included in their theology, but that's not principally what they meant by the term perseverance of the saints. What they meant is that if a person is eternally secure— they will persevere in a new life. That's why Jesus can speak, for instance, in the Olivet Discourse of Tribulation Saints, that is, people who find Jesus as Lord and Savior during the time of the Great Tribulation period, that if they are truly believers, they will persevere to the end. Uh, You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. And of course, during that period of human history, If you embrace Jesus as Lord, it means you refuse to take the mark of the beast, 666. And if you refuse to take the mark of the beast, then your end is sure and certain. You're beheaded. And so the revelation in the prior chapter speaks of this great multitude of people who have been beheaded and uh, for their faith because they refuse to embrace the false Christ, the antichrist, the one who comes in the place of Christ. So again, the Bible does not teach salvation by works, but it does teach that if we are saved, there will be an evidence. And that's the message of the book of James. And it's certainly taught in every epistle and letter of the New Testament, a change of life. And we live in a day when a lot of people say they are believers but they give no real evidence and no real change of life. And they've really deceived themselves. And what a horrible thing to have all the outward things. And then for the Lord to say to you, well, actually, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who, and there's the word again, as in Revelation 21, practice iniquity. Uh, Again, what's your practice? What's your lifestyle? Uh, what's the direction? We're not talking about perfect people, uh, but we are speaking of people with a new direction, uh, a new heart for the things of God. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next question is based on Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. This caller knows that this was meant for the Israelites, but is wondering if we should be claiming this for ourselves individually, and should people use this scripture to claim for more than salvation? The caller hears people claim this scripture all the time, and is just wondering about this. Well, um, it, it's a it's a it's a fair question. And Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Let me read it to you. Many of you listening maybe even have it memorized. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and I will. And you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from 
all the nations and from all the places I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I have sent you into exile. What's the context? Well, Jeremiah, of course, is is preaching to the southern kingdom, Judah. There's two tribes in the southern kingdom. It's named after the larger of the two. Uh, there's Judah and there's um, uh, uh, Israel. It, uh, no, well, Israel's the ten northern tribes. Oh, uh, Benjamin. 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 Yeah. So there's Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin is the smallest of all the tribes in Israel, and there was a reason for that. I won't get into that, but um, they're named after the larger of the two. The ten northern tribes, which are called at one point in Israel's history Israel, which becomes a little confusing because prior to that, when the kingdoms united, they're all referred to as Israel. After Jacob, who's named Israel, prince of God by Yahweh, who has 12 sons with which form the 12 tribes. Um, So it's a little confusing because there comes a point where they are divided under the rule of Solomon's son Rehoboam because of his um, sin. He listens to the young leaders instead of the older elders in the kingdom and ignores the wisdom of the older men and the kingdom is torn in two. And God said it was going to happen. Uh, when Solomon was alive because of his moral uh, compromise, but he waits until Rehoboam, and then it happens. And Jeroboam, of course, becomes the leader of the northern kingdom and Rehoboam of the southern kingdom. And and then you have all these pre-exilic prophets who come and they preach, some to the northern kingdom, some to the southern kingdom. And as you read a prophet of the Old Testament and you sort that out, that prophet will begin to make sense to you. You'll say, oh, I understand the time frame in which this man is preaching. Really, every prophet falls into, um, that has a name that uh, bears a book of the Old Testament because there are other prophets that don't have books written by them and they come in a different age, but they're either pre-exilic, exilic, or post-exilic. The pre-exilic prophets are those who preach either to the northern kingdom or to the southern kingdom before they're carried into exile. The exilic prophets, there's only two, uh, Daniel and Ezekiel, they preach during the time of the exile. And then the post-exilic prophets are after the people are returned to the land. So Israel is first carried off by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and um, they had ignored the warnings. And so God sends... uh, prophets to the southern kingdom, Jeremiah is one of those prophets. And he's saying, listen, man, you guys, if you follow what the northern kingdom did, you're going to be whooped. And of course, he knows what the ultimate answer is because God has told them how they're going to respond. And so he tells them how long they're going to be in exile for 70 years. And at the end of the 70 years, God tells them they're going to be restored. And that's one of the major focuses of this chapter. So even though they are in a time of heartache, when they read the prophet Jeremiah, which by the way, Daniel himself reads, and he references in Daniel chapter nine, he realizes, oh, the time of the 70 years is growing to an end. And uh, I remember what Jeremiah the prophet said, and how God would restore us. And he's reading that in Daniel 9, as he indicates. And it's in that context where God speaks through his man, and he says, listen, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. I haven't abandoned you. 
I'm going to restore you. I'm going to gather you. I'm going to bring you back into the land of Israel. And it's going to result in genuine repentance, the 70 years of discipline. And you're going to seek me with all your heart. And because you seek me, I'm going to be responsive to you. And so, yes, in the context, it is given to the southern kingdom. So when you read promises in the word of God, one of the things that you want to ask is, is this a promise that the Holy Spirit has given generally to all believers in all time? And there are many promises like that. Paul speaks, for instance, in Philippians of the peace of God, which will um, uh, garrison our hearts, surround our hearts, if, uh, if we meet the conditions of that promise. Or 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. That's a general promise made to God's people. Or, or Psalm 1, again, it's not directed only at one particular group of people, but it could be applied just as well to any new covenant saint where God makes a promise that if we would uh, not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the seat of path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but we delight and meditate on God's word day and night, he'll, he'll plant us firmly like a tree along a river stream and we'll yield fruit in the proper season and we won't wither. That's a general promise given to God's people in every age. But there are other promises that are geared to a specific individual, or in this case, to a specific group of individuals. Now, sometimes when you read a promise like this in the Old Testament, you can say, well, does this have any application for a New Testament saying? And with this particular promise, I would say yes, because you have verses like Ephesians 2.10, most of us can quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. Uh, it, that is our salvation, this whole by grace through faith process is God's gift, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. And then he says, for we are his workmanship, a poema. We get our word poetry. We're God's poetry created his masterpiece, his work of art. It, it had a couple of different connotations in first century Koine Greek. We're God's work of art created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you're not saved by works, but you're saved to do good works. That gets back to the prior question and some earlier questions in this hour. We're saved for good works. Notice which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So based on Ephesians 2.10, though Jeremiah 29 11 is given to the Jewish people, to the southern kingdom, uh, it could be applied to us today because the principle applies that God has plans for me, in Paul's language, works prepared beforehand that he wants me to walk in. And that's part of the pleasure and delight of walking with God, is we discover the works that he has. You know, God loves you and has a plan for your life, Bill Bright used to write, in the four spiritual laws. He does. He has a plan for his people. He offers a plan for his people. Uh, Works beforehand, which he's prepared for you. So while there's a general plan that applies to all God's people, there's a specific plan that applies for your life. He may want you to be a doctor. He may want you to be a plumber. He may want you to be a preacher. He may want you to be the president. He has a plan for your life. He may want you to be single. He may want you to be married. Your 
responsibility is to walk with God, to obey what you know. And when you obey what you know, God will show you what you don't know. And you will begin to live out the works that he prepared in eternity past for you to walk in. So there are other promises, though, that we could look at in the Old Testament that are so pointed, so specific, they have absolutely no application but to that individual to whom it was given. And there's no way that you could apply it to any other saint, either in the Old or the New Testament. So if you have an Old Testament promise that's given to a specific group of people, you need to ask, well, is there a new covenant principle that would dovetail with this promise whereby I could apply it to myself? And if there is, then you can hold on to it and you can quote Jeremiah you know, twenty nine eleven as your own. But don't miss the original context in which it was given or, or you miss the power of the promise and what it's saying. All right, very good. I think we've got time for a quick one. Ryan from Boston writes, I'm a college student looking to start studying church history for myself. I was wondering if you'd heard of The History of the Christian Church by Philip Schaff. That's what I'm looking at to study. I read some good reviews, but was wondering if you have any recommendations. Also, what's the best way to study this? Would it be to read and mark up the book or to take notes? Well, whenever I read a book, I like to mark up a book. I, I take either old credit cards that I've written in indelible ink, uh, void, or I use uh, those hotel room cards, and uh, I stick them in my Bible or books as bookmarks, and I underline uh, using a straight line, and it fits well in most paragraphs. Um, so, yeah, underlining can help you to retain, to think what's important. Uh, Philip Schaff's work is a pretty meaty work. It's five volumes, if I remember. It's a long time since I've read it. Uh, it's a decent work on the history of the church. I think there are some easier and lighter works that would be helpful to you. There's one that's done on the history of Christianity. It was on Erdman's Press. It goes in and out of publication. I think right now it's out of print, but if you went to half.com, which is the eBay side of used books, and you typed in uh, the history of Christianity, Erdman's, you'd find that book that, uh, you know, when I bought it, it was $20, probably it's 60 bucks now, uh, but you'd probably find it for 3 or $4 plus shipping. In fact, I buy a lot of old books or books that are kind of classics uh, used online, and sometimes uh, so I was looking for a book the other day, and and I thought, well, right now I had it, and I'd lost it, and it was $21. I found it at Half.com for $0.99, cents and it was $3.95 to ship it. And it was a hardback, not a paperback. So it was a deal. Um, but his five volumes would be pretty weighty to get through. Um, I would recommend probably Erdman's. It's a single volume. That would be a good place to start. It will give you an overview. You'll finish it. And then maybe if you want to go further, then get Shaft's five volumes and, and, and go a little bit deeper. They also wrote a companion volume called The History of Christianity in America that is also excellent in good reading, and I think you'd find that helpful as well. All right, well, we're out of time today, and I hope the Bible line's been useful and encouraging to you. If we didn't get to your question, well, God willing, next time. Have a great day. 